Topic for today's Satya Dhamma talk is uh, Chitta Nupasana Satipatthana, namely the mindful contemplation of uh, the mind. And Satya, this then is uh, one of uh, the talks of a series on the four establishments of uh, mindfulness. And in the beginning of our meditation practice, we are at times overwhelmed by worries, by regrets, by fear, anger, jealousy, depression, anxiety, obsessive thoughts, high expectations, mental stress, competition with other meditators, pride, and so on and so forth. Now, and things don't end uh, with this, but uh, they get even more complicated when we identify you know, with these uh, mental states. And uh, we then take them to be my worries, my fear, my anger, my depression, and uh, so on. And uh, as a result of this, we experience a lot of uh, misery and a lot of uh, mental suffering. And furthermore, we tend to perceive these uh, mental states uh, to be permanent, to uh, last, and uh, then to be substantial. And uh, at times they seem so real. And again, at times it's, uh, you know, we may be going through an emotional, emotional storm, especially you know, when you know, the five hindrances arise in our meditation practice. So, in a nutshell, we are you know, deeply entangled in the tangle of mental states. To disentangle ourselves from this tangle, we can do the following. The first thing to do is by observing an ethical code of conduct like the five precepts or the eight precepts or the ten precepts of the Samaneras, the novices, male as well as female, or even the monastic vows of the monks and nuns. And thereby we will ensure that we will be free from a bad conscience in the future, from having well-second thoughts, and we'll be free from regret and worries. And in this way, we ensure that our future circumstances will be wholesome and pleasant. So it is in this way that, as a first step, we disentangle this tangle of mental states. And then, as a second way, by developing concentration, we manage to suppress the five hindrances, and thus the emotional storm calms down somewhat more, and as a result of this, we suffer less. And thus we disentangle this tangle of mental states with concentration. And 
then as in the course of our meditation practice intuitive insight arises such as into mind and matters or being able to discern and distinguish mind from matter and other insight knowledges we realize that mental states are fundamentally different from physical objects and we also realize that some mental states are wholesome, in Pani known as kusala, whereas others are unwholesome. In the Pani scripture language, these are known as akusala. And we further realize that it is not my anxiety, not my fear, my worries, and so on, but just mental states of anxiety, of fear, of worry, and the like. So in this way, we learn to disidentify or to disassociate from the mental states to some extent. And it is through the arising of intuitive insight that we disentangle the tangle of mental states some more. Now, Next, we begin to <coughs> sorry, we begin to notice how some of uh, the internal or external phenomena cause an unwholesome mental state to arise, and we begin to see some you know, cause and effect certain uh, links. But we may also you know, see how a particular you know, condition may bring about certain you know, some wholesome you know, mental you know, state. And so it is in this way that we then further disentangle you know, this tangle of mental states uh, a little bit uh, more. And as we then continue you know, with our you know, meditation practice, we realize uh, that a mental state you know, undergoes certain changes in the way that it arises, then it will be there for a while, it may even change, and eventually it will disappear. And with this, we then gain a rather intuitive, a rather direct understanding into the impermanent, the transitory and changing nature of mental states. And so thus Anicca is understood. And then with continued practice, a meditator realizes that mental states, and not just the unwholesome ones, but in a more comprehensive manner, all mental states in the end are unsatisfactory, they're conducive to suffering. And so not, they're not conducive to uh, happiness. And so then, you know, as we you know, continue with our meditation practice, we keep observing whatever predominant you know, object arises. We will you know, then realize that you know, these same mental states arise of their own accord and you know, that they also um, are beyond our control and certainly that they lack a core. So um, 
in this, as a result of this, we then see the mental states that no longer as belonging to a self or as self itself or as an ego or individual. And so this then brings about further disidentification from the notion, the wrongful notion of self. So by seeing mental states clearly to be transitory in nature, to be unsatisfactory in nature, and to lack a self, we further disentangle the tangle of mental states. And then again, we may find out in a very direct manner that these mental states that at times seem rather permanent and like almost ever-lasting, sometimes lasting for several hours, that they actually do arise and pass away quickly. Now, this is a fascinating experience. So when previously a mental state was seen to be or thought to last for many hours non-stop, now we see that it's breaking up into individual parts and each smaller mental state then comes and goes in a quick succession. And this understanding then helps us to further disentangle this tangle of mental states. And certain things certain then, of course, continue, and well, things continue, and we continue to disentangle this tangle of mental states. Now, with regard to mental states that oftentimes are seen as forming well, our the mind as an entity. The Buddha has recommended that we undertake the contemplation of, uh, of the mind, namely citta nupasana satipatthana. And with regard to uh, this citta nupasana satipatthana, the Buddha has uh, said the following, and I'm quoting from you know, the Tenth Sutta or Discourse of the Majjhima Nikaya, the Middle Length Discourses, paragraph 34. And it's the translation by Venerable Nyanamoli and revised by and edited by Bhikkhu Bodhi. And how bhikkhus or bhikkhunis or lay meditators, how does a meditator abide contemplating mind as mind? Here, a meditator understands mind affected by lust as mind affected by lust, and mind unaffected by lust as unaffected by lust. Furthermore, a meditator understands mind affected by hate as a mind affected by hate, and mind unaffected by hate as mind unaffected by hate. 
A meditator understands mind affected by delusion as affected by delusion and conversely a mind unaffected certainly by delusion as a mind unaffected by delusion. So up to this point certainly things are very systematic. Now to well unusual points are included. A meditator understands contracted mind as contracted mind and distracted mind as distracted mind. And a meditator further understands exalted mind as exalted mind and unexalted mind as an unexalted mind. A meditator understands surpassed mind as surpassed mind and unsurpassed mind as an unsurpassed mind. And a meditator understands a concentrated mind as concentrated mind and an unconcentrated mind as such. And finally, a meditator understands liberated mind as liberated and an unliberated mind as unliberated. Now, this passage from the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the establishments of uh, mindfulness now contains a number of uh, terms that uh, need uh, further or that require further uh, explanations and those explanations will be uh, given in a while. But before uh, doing so, uh, allow me to uh, point out some uh, general aspects uh, regarding this portion or this passage from the Satipatthana Sutta. And what I'll say will in part be based on Venerable Analayo's explanations given in his book Satipatthana. Now, when 16, 16 different states are being mentioned here in our passage, and these certain 16 states are then further broken down into two, two sets or two different groups. The first group or set consists of the so-called ordinary states of mind, whereas the second group consists of the so-called lofty or higher states of mind. And in the first group of ordinary states of mind, we have a mind that is affected by lust or not affected, a mind that is affected by anger or not affected by anger, then the same thing for delusion, and then the two unusual states, a distracted mind and a contracted mind. In the group of lofty or higher states of mind, we have the great mind, the unsurpassable versus the surpassable mind. And instead of saying great, we can also say exalted mind, and then the opposite of that, the unexalted mind. And then as number three, the third pair, the concentrated, the non-concentrated mind, and finally the liberated and the not-liberated mind. Now, the Buddha has uh, introduced a new approach when 
it certainly came to the treatment of the mind. And it seems that before his time, the common practice among ascetics in India was simply to take the mind as an, as an entity. And then based on this, based on a rather coarse approach to the mind, all sorts of well, wrong views arose. And most of these wrong views are actually connected with jhana practice. So the practice of the absorptions. And what the Buddha does instead is he looks certainly at the mind as um, well as a composition of different mental states and um, he then encourages a meditator to observe a mental state as an object or to take a mental state and as, as an object of observation. So not to indulge in it, but rather to you know, observe it in an objective, in a neutral manner. Kind of what do we have here? Not getting involved in it. So that is the new approach and actually a rather liberating approach. And by doing so, a meditator then gradually realizes that these mental states are rather impermanent in nature. And on top of this, they lack a core, they they lack a self, and thus a certain detachment or disidentification from these mental states then takes place. Plus, one sees the one sees the mental states as well-being, or one sees the mind as being influenced by external or internal events, and it's not that the mind is uh, under the control of an assumed uh, self. So uh, thus we see the conditioned nature of the mind and uh, also its uh, impermanent uh, nature. Now before going further into the details or detailed discussion of uh, this particular passage uh, from the Satipatthana Sutta, let us clarify a few or well, one, one or two main and general points. And when it comes to physical as well as verbal misbehavior or physical bodily or verbal transgressions, the Buddha recommends cut it out and replace this by some more suitable behavior. So a more suitable behavior in terms of an ethical code of conduct. 
And so the approach with regard to the, the mental states is different. And what do you think? When some unwholesome mental state arises, does you know, the Buddha recommend that we right away suppress it? And the answer is correct, no. And so instead, what are we supposed to do? Observe it, there you go. And so observe it again and again, um, with wise, uh, wise uh, reflection, with wise, uh, wise attention. And as uh, already pointed out in uh, one of our previous uh, demo talks, different approaches are around uh, when it comes to uh, mental states in well, our somewhat modern uh, society. So modern psychology, you know, for instance, part, one part of modern psychology recommends that we act out you know, on you know, those mental states. So when we feel angry, then it's high time to scream and yell and beat and take some stick and hit a mattress and to kind of just let out uh, you know, all you know, that uh, the aggressive uh, the energy. And, uh, um, and then when we think of our, well, at least uh, or, or our grandparents, for them the you know, notion or the idea was in terms of uh, you know, destructive emotions, well, don't acknowledge them, pretend they're not there, and simply just suppress them. So don't uh, you know, uh, act on them in any you know, way. And the Buddha's approach is uh, that lies just in the middle. So it is neither uh, acting out you know, those mental states nor you know, suppressing them. And so instead, we, as meditators, we rely on this gentle approach of just observing. And in, in fact, even though it is a rather gentle approach, it's nothing dramatic, but if this approach is being applied again and again over time, we find that it brings about major changes. Now, you might certainly object. What do we do in the case of the arising of a very extreme mental state? And should we then, um, should we then still you know, just limit ourselves to a gentle observation of it? Is that all we are allowed to do? And the Buddha has foreseen even this particular situation. And uh, when we follow you know, what is mentioned uh, in the Vitaka Santana Sutta, namely the discourse on the removal of certain distracting thoughts, and it's a discourse from the Majjhima Nikaya, then you know, what is recommended is in the end you know, to... Uh, well, uh, to um, to beat, uh, to crush and beat down mind with 
mind. And to beat down and crush mind with mind, in the case of thoughts, means that we intentionally replace the unwholesome mental states with wholesome mental states. And so we crush the mind with the mind. And what is said in the Vitaka Santana Sutta, is, or what is given there, is a process of gradual deactivation. So um, in order to overcome these distracting thoughts, first uh, we try a different certain contemplation to overcome some distracting thoughts. If this doesn't help, then um, we maybe try to uh, focus on, on some other topic. No, wait a minute. Or we try to, uh, what was it? We try uh, to ignore those and so on. And so we do the same thing when it comes to you know, well, very strong and certain destructive mental states. So we apply this process of you know, a gradual you know, deactivation. And what this means in practice is if we find that we happen to be rather restless or agitated in our mind as well as in our you know, physical you know, and verbal behavior, then you know, we, we realize, wow, why am I actually that agitated? Is there any reason for this? What if I you know, try to you know, let the mind calm down a little bit more? And so then, and then one lives like this for a while, and then one realizes, well, the mind is still you know, relatively agitated. What if I you know, let the mind calm down some more? And so on and so forth, up to a point where the mind then becomes so, or is really you know, quite certain, calm, still, still and so peaceful. And so, in the case of highly destructive uh, mental states, if uh, uh, the earlier methods such as applying mindfulness um, and other uh, methods uh, such as uh, ignoring a particular mental state uh, doesn't uh, work, then we are asked to crush mind with mind and so, uh, this then uh, means you know, we kind of interfere and so, uh, we might so, uh, then uh, simply uh, observe some uh, other uh, predominant, uh, let's say, bodily uh, object. Or you know, we might so, uh, do something you know, like loving-kindness so, uh, meditation, as so, uh, the case uh, may be. But this last approach of, or the approach of you know, crushing the mind with mind should be seen only as a last resort when you know, all of the other you know, methods are you know, not uh, yielding any uh, results.
Now, as for you know, the details of uh, our passage from the you know, from the Satipatthana Sutta, the term citta, the Pani term citta, you know, can be understood as mind or you know, one's state of mind, and when it comes uh, to you know, the ordinary states of mind you know, that uh, are you know, mentioned in the you know, first uh, you know, group um, of uh, you know, the passage, you know, then we can trace back six of them and two, you know, well, you know, the three roots of unwholesomeness. And what are the three roots of unwholesomeness that the Buddha you know, speaks about? Greed, hatred, and delusion, yes, is correct. So, um, loba, dosa, and uh, moha. Or you know, sometimes uh, you know, these uh, three are also referred to as uh, you know, lust, uh, hatred, and delusion, raga, dosa, moha. But lust and, um, and greed are in essence uh, you know, the same. They boil down to the same thing. And so, now, when we undertake this uh, practice of citta uh, nupasana satipatthana, we uh, will uh, find out uh, pretty soon, and this may happen already within uh, just a few days of intensive practice, that uh, mental states come in different forms. Some of them are wholesome, some are unwholesome. And so we also now then discover now that so the unwholesome mental states usually lead to unwholesome results, and wholesome mental states lead to wholesome results. So this very first understanding into or insight into you know, the mental states is already of a tremendous certain significance. Now, when it comes you know, to you know, these uh, first uh, three pairs of uh, mental states, ordinary mental states, uh, we uh, have, uh, well, an unwholesome state contrasted with a wholesome one. So, a mind affected by anger versus a mind unaffected by anger. Now, it is common in the discourses to find an expression such or such kind of a contrast and with an expression there, a mind unaffected by anger. And the term unaffected by anger may assume different meanings and somewhat implied meanings. So a mind without anger could be interpreted as a mind that is momentarily free from anger, namely you know, owing to you know, the presence of, uh, mind, of continuous mindfulness. But the, and on top of this, the expression without anger or unaffected by anger may assume 
yet different meaning, namely a mind that is overflowing with loving-kindness. That's just another uh, interpretation. And so then when we say without anger, this may also be taken in an absolute sense. So then without anger means what? If we say a being is without greed, without anger, without hatred, then this means what? Fully enlightened? Yes, indeed. So then this refers to a noble one, a holy one, an arahant, in whom, so the text say, there is simply no more greed, anger, and delusion. These mental defilements have been totally uprooted from the stream of consciousness of this person. And the expression without anger may assume yet a further meaning, namely in the sense of a relative absence of of anger or relative absence of greed, relative absence of delusion. Now, this needs to be explained further. As one goes on meditating, one may gain the first path of stream entry and with this comes the eradication or the cutting off of three specific fetters and apart from this also a weakening of all other unwholesome mental states to an extent that they will no longer lead if one acts on them to a rebirth or to rebirth in a state of loss. And Thus, when one then contemplates, one contemplates or reviews one's mind, one finds that in comparison to maybe before one or to when one started out doing the meditation practice, one now has less anger, less greed, less delusion. So this then is the meaning of a relative absence of lower dosa and more. Of course, in the case of a of an anagami, a person who has gained the third level of enlightenment, greed, sensuous greed, and hatred have been uprooted from the stream of consciousness. Now, the first six mental states mentioned in our passage or form pairs of opposites, one unwholesome mental state versus a wholesome one. Whereas for the last two, we find namely the, the, what is it, the distracted mind and the contracted mind, these are what? Two wholesome states or one wholesome, one unwholesome? 
both of them are unwholesome. And so the commentaries you know, suggest that wikita chaitam or wikitam chaitam should be taken as as a distracted mind, namely as a mind overcome by restlessness, and the contracted mind, which actually occurs first, this should be taken or understood to refer to sloth and torpor, tina meda, in the Pali scriptural language. So both of these are unwholesome mental states. And However, the presence of uh, these two, namely the the shrunken mind, contracted, shriveled mind, and then the distracted mind, uh, these two mental states interfere with with the development of uh, one's meditation practice. And... Uh, so, an awareness of uh, these two states uh, then will help a meditator uh, to uh, then kind to uh, clearly see their nature and then uh, to uh, let go of them. Now, when we undertake this uh, practice of chitta nupasana. And so we then are aware of the various mental states arising, and in particular those three roots of all unwholesomeness, then we may indeed find that when greed or lust or passion is present, that it that we're burning with it, and it feels like being on fire. And we may also then find that when we are all tensed up through the presence of anger, that we are like in a grip. And and then when we experience ignorance, that we feel trapped like being in a net. And therefore, the Buddha has, or in this context, the Buddha has mentioned, as is recorded in Dhammapada, verse 251, Nati aragasamo agi, nati dosasamo gaho, nati mohasamam jhanam, nati tanhasama nadi. Which means in English, there is no fire like passion, there is no grip like ill will, there is no net like ignorance, there is no river like craving. Now, the first eight mental states that are mentioned 
in our you know, Satipatthana Sutta under you know, Nupasana all have mundane consciousness and as an object. And so uh, mundane and so mundane consciousness, you know, consciousness pertaining to you know, the sense sphere, Kama Vajara Chaita in the Pali scriptural language. Now, let us move on and then take a look at the second group of mental states mentioned in the in the passage on Chitta Nupasana and the passage on lofty or higher states of mind. Now, the first pair mentioned there is the great or uh, exalted state of mind versus uh, the unexalted state of mind. And here, great in the Pali scriptural language is given as Mahagata, Mahagata Chaita, which is a term that is usually used in the text in the context of the uh, well of the Brahma uh, Brahma Vihara meditation, namely the practice of uh, the four uh, divine abodes, and the four divine abodes consist of the uh, practice of uh, loving kindness meditation, metta, uh, metta meditation, metta bhavana, and then the practice of compassion, karuna bhavana, then the practice of sympathetic joy, mudita bhavana, and finally upeka bhavana, which is the contemplation of uh, equanimity. And thus, great or exalted state of mind has to do with samatha meditation. And the scriptural reference for this comes from the Patisambhida Magga, its first chapter on wisdom. And an unexalted state of mind then would be just an ordinary a state of mind, so uh, a state that has nothing to do you know, with the absorptions or doesn't qualify uh, as such uh, uh, yet. Then we have uh, you know, the so-called surpassable sa-uttara and the unsurpassable uh, mind. Now, this requires certainly some explanation. And an explanation from the jhana practice, namely, when we practice loving-kindness meditation, metta bhavana, then, first of all, we have to develop the first jhana, the first absorption. And this first jhana consists of four jhanic factors, if we use the Sutanta method of reckoning, or otherwise five if we use the Abhidhamma way of reckoning. Now, when we use the first way of reckoning, 
And then um, the first jhanic factor consists of vitaka and vichara, two mental states which uh, are referred to as the initial application of the mind and the sustained application of the mind. And the second uh, jhanic factor uh, then is vitaka uh, vichara beat is piti, namely joy and uh, rapture. And the third one is sukha, namely happiness. And uh, now the last one, the fourth one, is ekagata, one-pointedness of mind. Now, in order, or, or when we undertake this satna samatatna practice, and we try to uh, develop the first uh, jhana, then usually what happens is that first, do you know, the first two jhani, or you know, does the jhanic factor of vitaka and vichara arise? And so, uh, so then we'll experience this for a while, and we can develop the second jhanic factor only if we go beyond the first one. So if we go, if we surpass you know, the first one. And the term surpassable, sa-uttara, should be understood in this sense that we need, in order to proceed to a higher level of absorption in, with regard to our first jhana, or the same thing applies to the second, third, and fourth jhana, we need to surpass a certain jhanic factor, this or then the following, and so on. And the term unsurpassable still refers to or has to do with uh, you know, the samatha meditation, so you know, the development of uh, you know, the you know, absorptions, and it refers to the fourth jhana. And when we then you know, do um, a type of uh, jhana practice where you know, the fourth uh, jhana uh, occurs, and not all you know, kamatanas, all you know, subjects for you know, samatha practice leads you know, this far, then in order to get to this unsurpassable state of equanimity and mindfulness, we need to will surpass a number of other jhanic factors. And once the equanimity and mindfulness is there, then, or we can also say equanimity and one-pointedness, then we can't take it any further. There aren't any further jhanic factors to arise. It just ends there. And therefore, the expression is used unsurpassable. Now, the term unsurpassable also occurs in a different connection, namely in the connection of uh, Vipassana meditation. And uh, there it is uh, used uh, to include uh, reviewing knowledge after the realization of, uh, of uh, well, path and fruition knowledge. And so in the sense 
that this reviewing knowledge you know, then uh, investigates or reviews which fetters have been abandoned you know, through the attainment of the path and which fetters you know, remain. And thus, you know, the term unsurpassable you know, may you know, assume you know, the meaning of full awakening. So it is uh, uh, a term uh, that you know, then uh, refers to a very high you know, state of uh, mind. Now, when it comes to the pair of a concentrated versus an unconcentrated mind, well, concentrated here, samahita, you know, refers to you know, states of concentration, that of uh, well, somewhat higher concentration, that uh, um, arise, you know, that might arise you know, during both the samatha meditation, so you know, the meditation of calm, as well as you know, during insight meditation. And a concentrated mind is a mind that is firmly fixed or glued to the predominant object of observation. And, or another way of putting it is, is the unification of the associated mental factors all onto one object of observation at a time. Now, the out of the last pair of uh, lofty mental states, we have the liberated state of mind, and so, you know, this term vimutta, vimutta you know, may you know, refer to a temporary you know, experience of you know, being liberated from you know, the mental defilements, uh, but it may also you know, refer to a permanent such state of being liberated you know, from uh, mental you know, defilements. And as such, it uh, may arise or it may be used in the context of both, namely, calm meditation, samatha bhavana, as well as satna vipassana bhavana. Now, when it comes to these different mental states, as mentioned in the Satipatthana Sutta in its section on Chitta well, we then need to learn means and ways of overcoming them. And but before going into uh, this, let me add one more thing, one point uh, that uh, I've forgotten. Namely, you might uh, point out that only 16 uh, states have been uh, mentioned uh, in this passage from the Chittanupasana, uh, Satipatthana, and uh, what about a number of other uh, mental uh, factors? Are they not included? And it can be said that, or one needs to point out, that they are included, namely, under the heading of ignorance. So ignorance is mentioned, 
as one of the you know, three roots of unwholesomeness. And so, uh, it is ignorance that is present in all unwholesome consciousness. So you know, by mentioning the head or the root um, of, an, of, 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 an of a particular consciousness, you know, then you know, the um, unwholesome mental states that are connected with um, ignorance uh, are included, are meant to be uh, included. Now, when it certainly comes to you know, these certain different certain mental states, in particular unwholesome mental states, it's always certainly good to remember that you know, they occur in mundane consciousness, but not in supramundane consciousness. So, you know, when, you know, for instance, path knowledge or fruition knowledge you know, takes place, and then you know, is there any anger in Nibbana or not? There is none. Is there any greed in Nibbana? There is none either or neither. Now, <clears throat> let us explore you know, this topic of Chitta a little bit further by going into one particular mental state, namely that of anger. What does all of this mean with regards to anger? And anger, as we've seen, is clearly an unwholesome mental state, and as such, it's not yielding any uh, any benefits. And the Atasalini, namely the commentary to the Dhammasangani, you know, points uh, gives a, a very nice def definition for wholesome states you know, versus unwholesome states. So there it says you know, that the characteristic of wholesomeness is anawanja sukha vipaka lakanam. Kusala or wholesomeness has faultless, happy results as its certain characteristic. So it's free of fault and it also is conducive to happiness. Whereas in the case of an unwholesome mental state like anger, it is blameworthy and it's faulty and certainly leads to suffering. Now, the function of uh, wholesomeness is certainly uh, the destruction of unwholesomeness, and certainly uh, purity is said to be you know, the recurring manifestation of uh, this uh, wholesomeness kusala. And in a secondary you know, definition of um, 
the term kusala, we find that its manifestation is of desirable uh, results. Now, then in the case of an unwholesomeness, akusala, it is said, or it is given in Pali as sawajadukha vipaka lakanam, namely, unwholesomeness, akusala, has faultiness and bad results as its characteristic. And so it is opposed to you know, wholesomeness, which is its function, and, uh, um, it's, and, and the second function is you know, that it produces harm or misfortune. And it manifests as turbidity, as obscurity of mind, as uh, a mental stain or uh, and dirt. Now, there are so many kinds of, of, or so many forms of anger around. And the Dhamma Sangani may serve as an opening to this particular aspect, where it lists a number of synonyms for a mind that is governed by anger. And there it says, that which at that time is hatred, having hatred, being given to hatred, being upset, getting upset, being prone to getting upset, opposition, repeated opposition, rudeness, anger, and anger, sorry, anger hindering coherent speech, displeasure, all of these are to be taken as hatred. Now, can you think of still other forms of hatred? Hatred in our, as it may occur in our life, either on retreat or off retreat. Pardon me? Holding a grudge against another person. Yes, quite correct. And what else? Envy. Mm, no, 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 no. Envy is a different mental state. Pardon me? Resentment, yes, indeed. Eh? No, 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 envy. Envy is a certain uh, jealousy. Craving. And, uh, yeah, and, uh, and craving that goes in that direction, but uh, it's not quite uh, a certain amount of uh, anger is in it, but it's certainly listed as a separate mental state. Then, what else? Have you thought of, pardon me? It will, yeah, sure. Impatience. Beverly? Impatience, yes. Venerable? Intolerance. Intolerance, yes. And have you thought of subtle forms such as giving another person the silent treatment? Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> or sulking and or making some sarcastic remarks and so on and so forth or being furious, being enraged, boiling with anger. Well, if we were to draw up a list of terms that describe different manifestations of anger or forms of anger, then this list would probably get pretty long. Now, Anger is clearly a destructive mental state and it may manifest in many different ways. It may manifest in our, within ourselves, this, for, this is one thing, and unfortunately it may also manifest externally and that's when it gets dangerous. And so in a really bad case, it could lead to uh, an act of uh, tormenting another person, tormenting, torturing, uh, and even killing another person. Even it might lead to a parasite or matricide. And in the case of the Buddha, uh, causing an injury to a Buddha. And when we think of society as a whole, or of uh, maybe um, uh, several societies or nations, uh, then it may lead to what? A war. There you go. Uh, A war, and if if just one country is involved, then uh, we might call it a civil war. And um, anger, uh, when acted upon in an unrestrained manner, then it brings a lot of harm to ourselves by soiling the mind, and it brings plenty of harm to those affected by it, those who have to suffer then the consequences of it. So anger may lead to death, it may lead to... Um, tremendous amount of uh, destruction. And even though uh, this is certainly so, uh, and even though it has been clearly identified as a a factor that is rather uh, antisocial, so against the the, welfare of a society, yet... Uh, one, in general, one could say you know, that uh, still not enough uh, efforts are being made you know, to curb it. Some efforts are there, but uh, not enough. And in some countries, it still seems easier to rally you know, people around a common hatred you know, or common uh, you know, grudge towards another nation or group, ethnic group of people, rather than rallying people around a topic of a common common love or common appreciation.
Now, anger is said to be an unhealthy state of mind, an unhealthy or sickly state of mind. And as we've seen, it's said to be morally faulty and blameworthy and leading to unpleasant karmic results or vipaka results. Whereas for wholesome mental states like non-anger, it is said that this would be a healthy state of mind, arogya, and that it is ethically faultless and leading to favorable or pleasant results. Now, this then is relevant in the sense that the next time anger arises and we contemplate acting on this anger, we better stop for a moment and listen inwards and then reflect on the consequences of acting on anger just for ourselves. So if we would act on anger and would hurt or harm another being, then in the end there will be some karmic results for us. And so we would have to live with the karmic or vipaka consequences of this act. Now, anger may arise with regard to, well, what do you think? Just visible objects that are connected with the seeing process? Or uh, does anger maybe also arise uh, based on hearing, uh, hearing other people saying nasty things? <laughs> well, anger may arise with regard to any object occurring at uh, you know, the six uh, sense stores. And uh, you know, the Venerable Mahasi side of uh, Myanmar of Burma points out that anger arises especially with regard to the hearing process. So we hear some comments, some unfavorable comments, and they get us going and we become like a pressure cooker that is close to, well, exploding. And now, even though, even though the Sangiti Sutta, which is you know, the last you know, discourse from the Diganikaya, uh, mentions only nine you know, causes you know, of uh, anger or you know, ill will of hatred, Agata Watuni in the Pali scripture language, yet there are many more. So there it says, and I'm quoting. <clears throat> Malice or anger is stirred up by the thought. Number one, he or she has done me an injury. Number two, he or she is doing me an injury, so right now, presently. Or number three, he or she will do me an injury in the future or some harm. 
Then the next certain three are, you know, he or she has done, is doing, will do an injury to someone who is dear and pleasant to me. Then next uh, um, you know, three are, you know, the person has, he or she has done, is doing, will do a favor to someone who is hateful and unpleasant to me. So, you know, if we think you know, that you know, these are all uh, possible causes of uh, anger, you know, then um, you know, this is uh, not the case. In the end, anything will do, any object will do to produce anger. It could be our collection of butterflies, you know, that's, uh, you know, maybe some other person uh, you know, very much cherishes and uh, you know, wants to you know, take along, or, <coughs> or it could be our stamp collection, or you know, it could be you know, just uh, uh, as... <laughs> As uh, pointed uh, pointed out, it could be some <coughs> sorry excessive you know, statement you know, that is uh, being made uh, on you know, or within the international arena among you know, different nation states. And so, you know, when it comes to you know, anger, then what do you think is more important? Is it more important? You know, to investigate the cause of an anger or you know, to look at the anger itself? Huh? The anger itself, yes, indeed. And so, um, as we've seen, there's no end, there's, there's no limitation to the different you know, or to you know, the you know, causes for anger. Today it's one reason, tomorrow it will be a different reason. And the day after tomorrow, again a different reason. Uh, however, what remains is the anger itself. The way it manifests in the mind, the way it manifests in you know, the body. And so if really we want to you know, do something about the anger and weaken it, then you know, we should observe it as it is going on, uh, as it is happening, while it is fresh and alive. So the next time anger arises, consider yourself extremely fortunate because you have a wonderful opportunity you know, to befriend this mental state of anger, and so, you know, to you know, do an investigation into it. Now, the Buddha, in the different places in the, you know, in the suttas, uh, has you know, given illustrations for anger, and I'll just point out a few, you know, namely, uh, anger has been given as, uh, or a person uh, who, who acts on anger has been described as a prisoner of Mara, the temptation, or anger has been you know, illustrated as a fire, and some, uh, then anger has been referred to as an inner foe, an inner enemy, an inner murderer, and an inner an antagonist. And 
to this we could certainly then add when anger uh, is certainly present in uh, the mind, uh, it's uh, like an erupting volcano. Uh, or uh, to give you a uh, more uh, modern uh, illustration, it's uh, like uh, we feel uh, like being a time bomb. Any time uh, this can explode. And when the explosion does take place, oh my goodness, uh, other people are advised to, uh, 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 well, seek shelter. Yeah, sure enough, and anger is one of the latent uh, defilements, uh, no, just like uh, greed and uh, delusion. But we'll talk about this uh, in, in a few moments. Now, it is uh, anger also you know, that, at least to some extent, uh, there are surely other uh, mental states that certainly uh, come in, uh, that uh, drive a suicide bomber or uh, that uh, might uh, drive uh, some uh, insurgent uh, to uh, plant a bomb or a landmine and uh, so on. Now, with regard uh, to uh, anger itself, it's uh, helpful to know uh, well, anger, as we've seen, is an unwholesome mental state. I've given you, you know, the definition of uh, unwholesomeness, akusala, and now it's also helpful to you know, take a closer look at the you know, definition, classical definition of anger itself. And so the characteristic of uh, anger is given as ferocity. And so... so the term ferocity is used with regard to what? Tamed animals or wild animals? Tamed or wild animals, of course. So ferocity kind of points at a certain savageness. And so the characteristic of anger is given or is illustrated you know, in the following way, it's like you know, being, you know, or, or it's like a, a provoked you know, a snake that is ready to you know, bite. And, so, and then, usually it says that its function, the function of anger is to spread. But just saying this, you will not necessarily understand what is, what is meant. Now, the illustration given for this is like poison spreads. So, you know, poison, a drop of poison you know, put into a glass of uh, well, liquid and, and then served to another person. Yeah, well, this uh, will spread and it will cause, it might cause uh, death. Now, to explain this from a modern point of view of conflict resolution. When we get into a conflict with another person, then at first there is the incident. So another person maybe is doing something or saying something that doesn't agree with our views, our ideas, and so on. 
And um, what happens, usually what happens next is that the issue doesn't remain on a, you know, a very material level, but rather what happens next? Yes, the person. We start personifying, we, the personification takes place, and the problem then is no longer with the issue, with the, with the event, the first incident, but now we see a problem with the other person. And we, we then think you know, that there's something wrong with the other person's character and uh, you know, you know, way of you know, you know, being. So you know, it you know, then uh, is heading towards a personal attack. And then as another step in you know, the escalation of a conflict, you know, human beings tend to you know, then you know, form you know, groups or parties and uh, then we form you know, groups of like-minded people who have the same enemy. And so, you know, you know, this you know, then you know, drives everything even further. And so, then sooner or later, you know, we will get to a point where communication, direct communication stops. And you know, what will happen next? Gossiping starts. So gossiping or backbiting starts. So we no longer talk directly to one another, but we only talk you know, behind the backs of uh, no, the back of another person. And so anger may easily and quickly you know, spread in ways you know, that we might not you know, realize. And the second function given of uh, anger is that of burning up its own support. Just like a forest fire will burn up its support, namely well, the area it's growing on. And anger is said to manifest as persecuting. And so it is like... Uh, an enemy that finally has an opportunity you know, to take you know, revenge and you know, get you know, hold of uh, you know, some opponent. And the proximate cause you know, for anger is given a ground as a ground for annoyance, those nine grounds mentioned earlier on, but as we've seen, anything will do. Now, since we don't have too much time, I'll need to, to condense a little bit. Now, when it comes to ways and means of overcoming anger, of ways and means of maybe nourishing anger and overcoming anger. Now, if we keep thinking about the same topic again and again, the topic that causes anger, then it will most likely um, then make things worse, especially if we think about it with an, uh, with an unwholesome uh, attitude. But if we... 
if we you know, think along a different line, you know, then the change may occur. And to quote from the 46th Samyutta, there is the liberation of the heart by loving kindness, frequently giving wise attention to it. This is the denourishing of the arising of ill will or anger that has not yet arisen and of uh, the increase and strengthening of uh, anger that has already uh, arisen. And therefore, the Buddha says, cultivate the meditation on loving kindness, for it will bring about a disappearance of anger. Now, other ways of dealing with anger are, number one, mindfulness. And here, very important, continuous mindfulness. And this goes in particular for, well, subtler versions of anger such as sadness or fear. And when our mindfulness is somewhat discontinuous, so for a moment we're mindful and then we're gazing or daydreaming, you know, then naturally you know, the unwholesome mental state you know, will have a chance to you know, arise again in you know, the stream of consciousness. So um, from a Vipassana point or Satipatthana point of view, it is mindfulness you know, that is our preferred way of uh, meeting you know, the anger. And uh, then uh, loving-kindness, uh, or the commentaries to the Satipatthana Sutta recommend loving-kindness. And here, two points, namely, first of all, to learn how to meditate on loving-kindness, and then secondly, and then thirdly, to um, then also apply it, to actually do it, actually cultivate it. And then, Furthermore, reflections on kamma and vipaka, namely the karmic connections, consequences of a deed based uh, on anger, should be helpful. So if you you realize that in the end it's all going to come back just like a boomerang, then you might consider twice. And then a further consideration is that, namely, when we, or even when we are really angry with another person, and we then contemplate hurting or harming another person, who will get hurt or harmed first? we ourselves. And uh, the Buddha has illustrated this very nicely. Namely, um, if we want to bring some harm to another person, then, uh, let's say, by throwing some uh, hot glowing coals at the other person, then we are the ones 
food, you know, we'll have to pick up those glowing coals first. So we'll suffer first. Uh, or another example or illustration for this, if we think of hitting another person with a hot iron rod, then you know, first of all, we have to hold it, grab it, grab hold of it. And since it's hot and burning, we'll get burned first before you know, the other person gets uh, harmed. And another you know, illustration for this is you know, if you're thinking of throwing excrement or feces you know, at another person, well, you know, you'll be you know, the first person to end up with soiled uh, hands. And so, uh, another you know, you know, worldly, worldly example you know, for this is, well, um, getting angry is like uh, you know, being on an ocean-going ship and so, you know, then uh, you know, trying to, well, let's say you, you've had your, you know, your meal and uh, you know, you've put some, you know, some water into, you know, into the dish in order to rinse it and then you want to spill it. And if you spill it uh, into the direction the ship is going, then it will uh, all fall back onto you. you know? So there's still other ways of explaining you know, this, but I'm not going to go into that. And so then the commentary to the Satipatthana Sutta also you know, recommends noble friendship as a way of uh, uh, overcoming you know, anger. So if you happen to be you know, angry frequently, you know, then seek out a person who is full of loving kindness and who keeps you know, responding again and again you know, to difficult situations you know, with loving kindness. And so you know, this thing you know, gradually might have an you know, influence uh, uh, on uh, the angry mind. And uh, as a uh, last resort, you, know, you might consider you know, listening to a Dhamma talk just like this one, namely on Jitanupasana uh, with an emphasis on anger. And so, now let me see. So the continuity of mindfulness, we've mentioned this sometimes, mm, apart from you know, what has been said, sometimes what uh, works uh, well in the case of really strong anger is certainly simply you, know, you, you know, ignore you know, the topic and you intentionally you focus your mind on you know, some other object, preferably you know, some bodily you know, pain, some strong bodily pain. And since that pain is you know, rather strong, it might uh, you know, well draw your attention. And so, you know, then while you're observing this uh, you know, strong bodily you know, pain, the anger might subside you know, to, you know, to some extent. Now, maybe you know, this much you know, for you now. And so let me conclude you know, today's Dhamma talk by wishing May the contemplation of the mind, Chitta, Nupasana, Satipatthana, well, may you, may you understand it well, and may you 
make good use of it, not only in the case of you know, the arising of some wholesome mental states, but in particular in the case of difficult, unwholesome mental states, and may it help you to overcome, finally overcome those unwholesome mental states, including the latent or dormant defilements. And you know, with the mind purified, may you know, the peace of uh, Nibbana be yours. And this is it for today. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.